It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Today on Super Soul Conversations, it was the breakout New York Times bestseller that captured the heart of millions around the world. For 18 Tuesdays, sports columnist and author Mitch Album met with his dying former professor, gathering wisdom and insights that transformed Mitch's life forever. On the 20th anniversary of the book, and 15 million copies later, Mitch shares the profound and lasting life lessons from his greatest spiritual teacher. I can't believe it's 20 years, and one of the things that stuck with me is that after we did our little interview on The Oprah Show, you seemed to be impressed that I had read the book. And I never forgot, because I said, well, well, of course I read the book, because I read all the books. And you said you'd be surprised. Well, in your case, I was surprised you found the book, because you were the first one to find it. You know, Tuesdays with Maury was not supposed to be some kind of big book. It was a tiny little book that got turned down by most publishers I went to. And so my surprise was that you had even heard of it at the time. It was really small. I don't even know how it came to be, you know, because people would recommend things to me or I would hear about something. And But anyway, it showed up. I read it. You were on the show. And then the book took off. Yeah. Once yeah. people embraced it, they seemed to find something in it that I have to be honest with you, I never anticipated. I was planning on going back to the locker rooms and be a sports writer and everything changed. Because you wrote the book really just to help out Maury. Just to you pay were, his medical bills. Just to pay his medical yeah. bills. Yeah, that yes. was it. In fact, if I hadn't had that as a purpose, honestly, Oprah, I would have given up trying because we had so many people tell us it's a bad idea, it's depressing, you can't write anything like that, you're a sports writer. I had one publisher tell me in the middle of while I was telling him what I thought was so significant about Maury, he said, let me stop you. We're not going to take this book. And honestly, I don't think you even know what a memoir is. Why don't you come back in 20 years and, and, and maybe you'll be old enough to write a, a good memoir. <laughs> I remember leaving there and I thought, why can't they just say no? I mean, it's like, they have to like <laughs> knock it down. I've actually heard, heard from them at, down the pike and they were interested in something else that I was doing when I had some more success. And you were kind enough not to remind them? I did not remind them. Oh, wow. But I also didn't go with them. Okay, <laughs> okay. You say on page 201, Maury Schwartz never read a word of Tuesdays with Maury, yet he still reaches so many people. Why? Because he took time in his dying days to give to a wayward student 
and I wanted to give something back and wrote this book and someone gave it to someone who gave it to someone and now look how large his classroom has grown for a man who's no longer here to teach it. This was Moore's dream really to be a teacher to the last, was it yeah. not? Yeah. Why do you think the book continues to resonate? Well, it's a story about a young man who's kind of lost and an old man who's dying who takes him in and, and teaches him a last class on what's important in life. I think, number one, everybody has had a teacher in their life at some point who's made a difference. Yeah. Number two, everybody's felt a little lost in their life. Yeah. And number three, everybody's going to die. Yeah. And I think those three elements, now that I've had 20 years to sort of reflect on it, uh, are probably what makes it universal in why people can read it in Thailand or Japan or Australia the same way that they read it here. It wasn't me. It was what Maury said and what Maury did that became a, an embrace lesson. And I think it's also because you were a student. You were a student. We've all had that moment where you really are connected to someone and you say, I'm going to stay in touch. Mm. And then life happens and you don't. Yeah. And had it not been for you seeing him on Nightline. Nightline with Ted Koppel, you could have been any place else. That's why I believe in, you know, signs, divine know order, do. providence. Yes, you're flipping through the channel and you see him. That's your old teacher. Yep. You make a decision to go back and visit him. Well, you're giving me too much credit. I made a decision to make a phone call. Mm -hmm. He made the decision to have me come back and see him because when, uh, when I was in college, I used to call him coach, uh, you know, sports affectation. I coach whatever. Mm -hmm. I, and I think I had forgotten about that. And when I dialed his number just to have one phone call to ease my conscience, the first thing he said to me was, how come you didn't call me coach? And I felt so bad that, you know, I ended up going to visit him once because guilt is a very powerful motivator. Yeah. And then one visit turned to another and another and another and all the Tuesdays. You know what? I, I just reread it. And the thing that impressed me is in the very beginning, when you go to visit him for the first time, you see this old man in the chair out front and you're on the phone. You see him see you and then you bend down to pretend like you're getting something off of the floor. And I hid underneath the dashboard finishing that conversation it was with ESPN because at that point in my life work came first and everything else could wait even a dying old man which is a terrible thing to have to look back on in your life and say you did but I did and uh, I say it and I wrote about it because I know there's some people out there if they were in the same situation they'd be on the floor yeah. also finishing pretending the conversation. That, well not only that I don't see you or pretending that whatever it is, can wait. Yeah. 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 Bad so what move. struck you after that first meeting that made you come back? What struck me was he didn't ever really ask me about, like, my accomplishments, which is what everybody was talking about in, the, you know, in that point in my life. Like, what are you doing? What are you earning? Where are you? What's your pop-up? He, he never asked me anything like that. He just said, are you happy? Have you found somebody to share your life with? Um, he was so calm, and yet here he was in a wheelchair. He could barely move at that point, and yet he never complained. He talked about how wonderful it was after the Koppel program. All these people were getting in touch with him, how great it was to see me. And when the meeting was over, I said to myself, you're, you're 37 years old, you're perfectly healthy. He's 78 years old and dying, and he seems 10 times more content and at peace with his life than you are. Yeah. There's something the matter with this picture. And that's what led me to go back to try to get the answers to what was it that he knew facing death 
that put everything into perspective, and I didn't have. Did it start out being what it be later became, those Tuesday visits? Was it intentional that he was sharing what it means to die? I think when you have ALS and you know you, your time is limited, all of your conversations are going to be informed by the fact that you're dying. Yes. And all of your philosophies are going to be informed by the fact that you're dying. Yeah. So there wasn't anything that he said that didn't at some point contain the sentence, when you get to where I am, and you will get to where I am, you know, like that. And so no matter what we talked about, marriage, money, uh, youth, whatever, it was always through the eyes of someone who really recognized he was dying. And I think that's what's most precious about Tuesdays with Maury because most of us don't really believe we're going to die. You know, we know intellectually we're going to die, but we don't feel it. We don't yeah. face it every day. When that day comes, are you prepared to say, okay, I'm ready because I've lived my life the way I want to live it. And very few people I know, myself included, especially at that point, could answer, yes, I'm ready. We'd all say, no, 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 not yet, not yet. Yeah. Give me more time. Give me more time. Yeah. yeah. When in fact, every day, that is what has happened every day of your life is that you've been given more time. That's right. And Maury seemed to understand that. Well, he certainly did once his, his time was up. Mm -hmm. And that's why he called ALS his horrible, wonderful disease. Horrible for all the obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. You can't move, you, can't, you need someone to carry you from place to place. He faced up to it and then he realized his body was just a carton he was shipped in. That wasn't who he was. And um, he began to teach from the soul. Well, I mean, the book is filled with so much wisdom, but one of the things that struck me I think when we spoke years ago was the lesson of forgive everybody everything. I remember telling you that because you said, I have a little problem with that one. I got to get past <laughs> that. Now, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Have you changed your view on it? I absolutely have changed my view on it. Okay. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. Because what I learned is that you don't forgive for the other person. You forgive to free That's yourself. Right. That's right. Yeah. Because anger is a dual-edged sword That's and it right. sticks in it's you. It's a poison like it's, that you're giving to yourself yeah. regularly. You yeah. know what? The reason I remember that so much is because he, I saw Maury cry many times, Oprah, but I never saw him cry as hard as he did when we talked about that because he was talking about a friend who he had had, who he'd had some little quarrel with, and they lost touch, and then he found out just recently that the guy had died from cancer. And he said, Mitch, I never had the chance to make it up to him. Why did I let that stupid conversation separate us for all these years? It means nothing to me now. Nothing, nothing. And he was, he was crying, you know, like from the solar wow. plexus tears. And he said, if there's anyone you love or you care about and you're fighting with or feuding, let it go. Let if it go. If you're 100% right, they're 100% wrong, say you're wrong. Because when you get to where I am, and you will get to where I am, you won't care who was right or wrong. And um, I have learned that lesson. Yeah. I have. I forgive everyone everything. I don't hold grudges. I can get mad, you know, like mm -hmm. everybody else. But I recognize time is short, and you never, that might be the last conversation you have with them. Another thing that he said that struck me, too, was about the culture, like not buying into the culture which I'm sure if he were around today, he would be amazed, stunned, overwhelmed by how much we have leaned in and bought into the culture. That's right. Yeah. 
He didn't. He lived his life, you know, kind of on the fringes. He didn't watch a lot of television, a black and white television set. He, he, you know, he, he had discussion groups in his house instead of going to the movies. Uh, and don't buy the culture means, if the culture tells you you have to be rich, the culture tells you you have to be thin, the culture tells you you have to buy a certain kind of car, you have to work a certain way, you're not, if you haven't made your first million by the time you're 24 in a yeah. tech company, there's something the matter with you. And yeah. it takes an incredible amount of strength to disconnect from that because everybody around you is connected to it and right. say, I am not going to follow those values. Mm -hmm. Maury did it even with his disease because he said, you know, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be ashamed of that I can't move, that I'm drooling, and mm -hmm. that, that someone has to reach down my throat and take the phlegm out, and someone has to wipe my rear end. But I refuse to be ashamed. So he said he knew the reason why so many people were unhappy. What was it? He said that they walked through their lives like they were sleepwalking. You know, they were following orders about what they should do with their life based on the culture that we just talked about. And they weren't finding the meaning in their life through giving to other people, being involved with their community, finding something creative, an outlet for themselves. They were busy trying to be somebody else's version of what they thought they should be. And he ended up describing not only me, but an awful lot of people that I knew at that time. And I think he's right. And I think America, unfortunately, we, we have a lot of people who are kind of sleepwalking through. And then we get to the end and we're like, whoa, whoa that can't be it. Wait a minute. Yeah. You know, I need... And that's why I believe certain crises, challenges, show up in your life as an opportunity to wake up. That's right. Actually. That's right. And sometimes a setback, a disease, a heart attack, um, a firing from a job, yeah. a, a loss, always some kind of loss, can end up being a great gain. I actually think the divisiveness that we're now experiencing in our culture between everybody, the us versus them versus us versus them versus is a wake-up call for society. It's, it's an opportunity for everybody to step into the best of their being yeah. and to show up. It's hard to say, you know, uh, okay, I get where you're coming from, but I'm gonna be, the, I'm gonna take the higher road mm -hmm. and I'll be the nicer person. Mm -hmm. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break. No two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, Destinations and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas' world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now... Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. 
Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. So tell me, he talked also about this value of family and how without family and a connection to yeah. family, Maury would say, I think he said we're like broken winged. Yeah, yeah. Birds, birds, birds with, with broken, broken wings. wings. Yeah, without love and without family. Well, again, when you're dying from ALS, you know, who's going to take care of you? It's a 24-hour thing, and it's your family. And he said, yeah, I have friends, yeah, but, but, you know, the security that I feel, knowing I have my family, I have my sons and my wife, you don't get that from anything else in life. The people that you can turn to and you know that they'll be there for you. I don't care if you have a million friends. Right. I don't care if you, you got a, a, an army of workers that yeah. adore you or a thousand fans. There's nothing like that security, that feeling, you know, the embodiment of putting your head on your family's shoulders and saying, I know you'll take care of me. And so this principle of family and loving something that's bigger than yourself, you took that and created an orphanage in Haiti. Well, uh, I took over. Would that have happened had you not been with It would <laughs> never have happened, right? I wouldn't have even found out where Haiti was. <laughs> I mean, uh, come on, unless I had a basketball team, you know, yes. that would have been it. No, I went to Haiti in 2010, right after the earthquake, and uh, got involved with an orphanage, and I ended up taking over the operations of it, and I've been there ever since, and I go there every month and we have 40 kids, and we take in new ones all the time. It is the embodiment of what Maury said about family and children. There was a moment where he said, you know, there will be no experience in your life like having children, none. And no matter what, what else you do, no matter how many friends, mm -hmm. it's, it's the fact that someone depends on you totally and needs you, and you have to guide them. He said, there won't be anything like that in your life. And I, my wife, Janine, and I did not have children of our own. We married kind of late in life to do that. But I feel like I've been given 40 children now. Yeah. Kind of, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm a lot more <laughs> tired than a young parent. But raising them and, and watching them grow and hearing them call or send messages up and Mr. Mitch, can we do this? Or Mr. Mitch, can we do that? Or whatever, is, is exactly what he said. He was so, so right about the value of children in your life. And especially children who are poor, and uh, who, who, who need you, you know, to get by. It is just so unfortunate that he never lived to read it or to know about it and to know of his influence, which is remarkable for me because it speaks to the power of a soul. Yeah. yeah, one soul. One soul. One soul touches one. Touches one, and which then, touches one, you know, which And somebody touches else one. And goes on, the ripples in the pond that mm -hmm. go on and on. When I was a sports writer and just a sports writer, if someone wanted to talk to me in an airport, they, you know, they, hey, you're Mitchell, uh, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I'd say, the Patriots, and I'd keep going, you know. And all of a sudden, after Tuesdays with Maury, someone would say to me, you're Mitchell, and say, yeah, my mother died of cancer, and the last thing we did was read Tuesdays with Maury together. Can, can, I, can I show you a picture? Can I talk to you about it? Well, you can't say, Patriots, and keep going. You stop. And that's, what, that's when it began for me, was Tuesdays with Maury made me stop and listen to people and, and actually hear more than the little, you know, meaningless uh, mm -hmm. conversations that I have been having. Each one of them has a sad story. Somebody is suffering. Somebody just lost somebody. Somebody's going home to take care of their sick mother. Somebody's dealing with a dying child. And I became sensitized to that. And once you do, you can't close your eyes to it anymore. Yes. And how has that impacted you? I mean, you're not the same man who went in 
that first visit or multiple visits later, you're not the same man. No, I mean, it's impacted me in many ways completely. I mean, it's changed all of my priorities. It's changed the way I, I approach life. It's changed the way I look at death or fear death. But I don't want to present myself like some kind of finished product of Maury's class. That would be incorrect and, and way too complimentary. Sometimes people will come up to me, the Red Twisted and say, Maury, can I ask you? I said, wait, well, Maury was the smart one. I was the <laughs> dumb one, okay? And I'm still the dumb one, so please, not Maury. But I don't have all the answers. I just have the study guide. And, uh, you know, I try to live my life with those lessons in mind. But, you know, it's a work in progress. Mm. So you start getting all these lessons of wisdom, and then how do those lessons show up in their manifestation in your life? Well, that's multifold. Uh, for example, uh, one of the times he said to me, uh, what do you do for your community? I said, what do you mean? He said, charity, what do you do for your community? I said, I, I write, write checks. checks. Yeah. He said, anybody can write a check. You have been given a voice, and you need to use that voice for more than just aggrandizing yourself. I always remember that because I never met anyone who used the word aggrandize in a sentence. I had to make sure I knew what it was. And he was right. You know, I had this position and I wrote a column and I did radio and I occasionally was on television. You, and you were writing about celebrities and... Well, sports heroes. Sports and heroes, like yes. that. And I said, you know, I can do more than that. So my column began to change. My books changed. The last sports book I wrote was the one before Tuesdays with Maury. Every book I wrote since that was in some way or another a piece of Tuesdays with Maury kind of That's manifested, right. whether right. it be a novel or, yeah. or a nonfiction book. So Was he afraid of dying? Not at the end, no. He'd had a big ramp up. You know, he had a lot of time to think of it. He did say he gave himself 45 minutes every morning to howl at the moon and cry and, and weep by himself and say, why me, why me? And then he said, That's it. That's enough self-pity for the day. He did say aging isn't decay, that you know, it's rather a blessing. And particularly, having the time to say goodbye yeah. was a blessing, he thought it was. We also, th that was one of the things, one of the Tuesdays, you know, every Tuesday we sort of took a topic. Yes. Yeah. He, was, he was a teacher, so he liked that. He liked to have, you know, he, he wanted me, honestly, Oprah, before, because I didn't tell him about the book. He wanted me to write a thesis. And I honestly didn't have the heart to say, you do understand I'm not enrolled anywhere. <laughs> Don't you have to actually be in school to write a thing? But he was so academic, you know. So one, one subject at a time each week we did, and one was aging. And I had asked him, you know, we live in a culture that Obsessed worships you. youth. Yeah. I mean, totally worships youth. And I realized here I am, younger, healthier. I'm coming to visit him every week, and then I get to leave. So I said, how do you keep from envying me my youth? How do you keep from saying, how come he gets to walk and he's healthy and I'm going to die in this house? And he said, Mitch, age is not a competition. He said, inside me is every age I've ever been. 10-year-old, 20-year-old, 37 like you, but also a 50, 60, 78-year-old man. So why should I be envious of where you are? I've already been where you are. You should be envious of me. I got 40 years on you. And that was the end of me worrying about age anymore because he was right. I think that's fantastic. What would you say, because we were just talking about you were a different person when you first went to that first meeting with him. What would you say to that self-absorbed young kid that was yourself? Back then? Yeah, what would you say today? 
well, depending on when I intercepted myself. You described yourself as highly ambitious and a workaholic and... Keep going. Sometimes <laughs> selfish and, you know? Yeah. I was all those things, maybe even more. Uh, I would say, first of all, pick up the phone and call your professor, not after 16 years. Call him like you said you were going to call him when you left school. You know, I don't get absolved because I went to go see Maury for, you know, 16 or 20 Tuesdays at the end of his life. I still missed 16 years of not calling him. That's unforgivable. And so first thing is I should have reconnected with him earlier. He might have taught me some more stuff. Then I would say slow down. Um, it's always going to feel like you're behind. There's always going to be someone doing better than you, and there's always going to be somebody doing worse. You're probably better off turning towards the one who's doing worse and saying, what can I do to help that person? And you are constantly keeping your eye on the one who's doing better and saying, how do I get where he is? You know what's interesting? You, you, you say that Maury always made you feel like a better version of yourself. And when I read that, I think, oh, isn't that just the most generous gift anyone can give to you to make you feel right. like a better but version of yourself. But don't you find yourself. that with people in your life who maybe you knew when you were younger, who mm -hmm. were teachers of yours? That's how it was with Maury. I, go, I went back to being like 17 and 18. Well, that's how I always was with Maya Angelou. Yeah. Yeah. I always felt like I was 11 or right. 7. Right. And I never made it to like a teenager in front of her. I was either 11 <laughs> or 7. And well, I would always, is pretty young. Yeah, I would always revert back to yes, ma'am, yeah. yes, ma'am. In her house, I would always feel like I was like a kid again. But she gave you the gift of not knowing everything. Yes. Right. That yeah. there was somebody smarter than you. Yeah. And I that's always what, knew I was sitting at the table with somebody who was right. way advanced. And honestly, as I get older, Oprah, that's the thing that I find um, maybe most heartbreaking about getting older. My mom used to say, the worst thing about getting older is 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 that you watch people that you love go and mm -hmm. you don't want to be the last one around she said I don't want to be the last one standing but I also find that I don't have the old mentors anymore that people are looking to me and and I want to say where's my Maury where's my mom you miss having older wiser people who you can turn to and that's what Maury made me feel like when I was visiting him during that time like I was a student again I wasn't a know-it-all I hadn't done all this I got like a do-over I got to be back behind the desk and ask questions and learn again. And I think the great teachers in our lives always do that to us. I think of all the lessons that he shared with you, I read where giving his living was one of the ones that impacted you the most. It is. It was. It is. I still remember exactly why he told me that, because I used to watch other people go in to visit Maury, and they would frequently have like a plan. Like, I'm going to tell him funny stories, I'm going to show him pictures, I'm not yeah. going to talk about his death, I'm not going to talk about illness. I mean, and they'd go in, the door would close, they'd come out an hour later in tears. Uh -huh. But they'd be crying about their divorce, their love life, their job, whatever. And I said, what happened? They said, well, I don't know, I went in to try to cheer him up, but after a couple minutes, he started asking me about my life, and then, and then I opened up. He and made he started, everybody feel a better version of and themselves. And he cheered them yeah. up. Yeah. So I went to him, I said, I don't get it. You know, you've hit the mother load of sympathy here. You're dying from ALS. You can say, let's not talk about your problems. And you can be justified. Why don't you do it? And he looked at me as if I was an alien. And he said, why would I ever take from people like that? Taking just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. Mm. I never forgot that. 
It also rhymes, so it's easy to remember. <laughs> Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Money is not a, I love this, money is not a substitute for tenderness and power is not a substitute for tenderness. I can tell you as I'm sitting here dying, when you most need it, neither money nor power will give you the feeling you're looking for, no matter how much of them you have. Yeah. Because there's something so intimate and comforting about tenderness. Did that have a profound effect on the way you're living your life now? Yeah. Well... Absolutely. I've had, not just Maury, I've had many examples in life of how money does not, mm -hmm. does not comfort you. And Even after selling 15 million copies around the well, world? Well, even after selling and other successes too, it doesn't make a whit of difference in your comfort, in your tenderness, in your anything. I would say, think about those movies where somebody's dying and everyone gathers around to hear his last words. Does he ever say with his dying breath, Bring me the big screen television set. You know, <laughs> it's never that, right? Yeah. Well, why do we think like, you know, when you're dying, and I watched it with Maury, he had nothing in the room that could be called status. He never counted his money. We're all going to be like that. When you get to that last drop of sand through the hourglass, everything that you own is of no comfort to you. That's right. It's not even in the room with you. It's in some bank or in the garage or the summer house. The only thing that makes you feel worthwhile or comforted is people and the people you love and that they can be with you holding your hand or something and, and saying goodbye. And their tenderness. And their tenderness. And their tenderness. And that's never going to come from a thing or a dollar bill. Mm. Do you still, are you in contact with his family? Oh, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, his, his wife Charlotte is, is doing well. She's in her 90s. God bless her. Has two sons. Maybe the most significant lesson I thought of our whole Tuesdays memorial was the last one. And I've kept my promise on that because Maury said to me, um, I want to ask you a favor. This was the last visit. And uh, I said, anything. He said, well, after I die, come visit me at my grave. I said, uh, okay, I was going to do that. He said, not the way everybody else does. Don't leave the car running. When you get out, you put the flowers down, you get back in. Come when you have time and sit and talk to me. Bring a sandwich, bring a blanket. And I said, you want me to talk to you, like talk to the air? He said, just like we're talking now. And I said, but it won't be like we're talking now because you won't be able to talk back. And he looked at me as if I were being very naive. And he said, well, Mitch, I'll make you a deal. After I'm dead, 
you talk, I'll listen. <laughs> and uh, I have always gone to his grave when I go to Boston. I do sit there. I do talk to him. Did and you bring a sandwich? No, because I think they would arrest me, actually. <laughs> I don't think that's allowed in a cemetery. But what I realize, Oprah, is that what he was saying was, you know, death ends a life but not a relationship. Yeah, I'm just going to go to that, yeah. But you have to invest in that relationship while you're here if you want it to go on. You can't have conversations with people who are gone if you didn't have conversations with them when they were here. You can't imagine a conversation with someone who was working all the time. But you can remember every time you ate popcorn together while you were sitting around the living room or, or, you, or you put the Christmas tree up or whatever. All those little memories, all those times that you give you of yourself. You do remember the tendernesses. That's right. Yes, you do remember it the It stays inside you. Yes. So I know you, you say you, whenever you're in Boston, you go by the graveyard, but do you feel his presence, his energy? Do you feel him in your life? I'm not talking about like a spirit or showing up in a form, but just like the essence of him. Sure. Yeah. I feel, well, first of all, there's not a day goes by that somebody doesn't say, the name Maury to me in some yeah, way. Yeah. Red Tuesdays with Maury, love you, think about him. Here's my Maury. People will take out their wallets and pull yeah. out a teacher of some kind, an older person. So the world reminds me. But the same way that the people in your life, your mother, your best teachers, always live in your heart and you hear their warnings when you're about to make a decision, I hear Maury's. I hear it all the time. And I hear Maury's voice more and more as I get older because I am now closer to his age than I was to mine when I went to visit him. And I've, I've crossed that barrier, uh, the age that he died. Mm -hmm. And um, death becomes very real to me, and I've seen it uh, you know, uh, uh, in a lot of different cases, so I have to think about it every day, and I think about him when I do. I love this beautiful passage you wrote on page 201. You, upon reading these pages, visit his home, and we are connected, not as waves, but as part of the ocean, through a short, silver-haired man who, in touching us, lives on. I can think of no better legacy for my old professor. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I wrote that for the 20th anniversary of it when the publishers asked me to add something. And yeah. I said, well, okay, what? And they said, well, what is, how has the world changed in those 20 years? And I realized how one voice and something done for the right reasons can change the world. Maury did not have to give all those Tuesdays to me. I was one of the least deserving people in his life of his time. But he did. He remembered me and then he cared for me and I was a wayward student and he wanted to help me. So every Tuesday he gave me his time. I in turn wrote a book that I had never tried to do anything like that before. I wrote it for the right reason. Mm -hmm. for the first, it was really the first time in my life I had done something for somebody else that didn't have my interests at heart or my career at heart. You touched on this earlier, but how did it change your own idea of death and dying for yourself? Did it make you more comfortable with the Maybe notion a, of dying? It made me a little less frightened mm -hmm. because uh, I had witnessed it. And I've done handled with such grace. Yes, and I saw there is a way to leave this world with grace, uh, but we don't all get two years to die either. Sometimes no. it's, a, it's a truck that you didn't see coming. So be prepared and live your life every day as if it could be your last. Now I 
I can't say I've been successful with that every day of my life or even the majority of them, but it is a ringing mm -hmm. sound in my head saying, this could be the last one. Is that really the way you want to end that conversation with that friend? This could be the last one. Is that really the thing you want to do? I missed the Super Bowl this year for the first time in 31 years. It was like a point of pride with me that I always went to the Super Bowl and covered it. You missed this last Super I miss, Bowl? Yeah, yeah. Nothing like missing a good game, right? But I missed it because Janine and I were taking care of a, of a seven-year-old with a brain tumor, and she became our daughter for the last two years. She was one of our kids from Haiti, Chica. I didn't know when I brought her to America for her surgery. I thought she'd get operated on and she'd go back. She never went home. She lived with us. And I ended up sitting alongside her as she slowly lost everything, the ability to walk, the ability to move her arms, the ability to talk. And uh, I had done that once with an old man, and now I was doing it with a child. And the Super Bowl came, and I was going to shoot down in the morning and come back at night just because I wanted to keep my thing intact and wanted to go. And she threw up the night before. And I looked at my wife. I said, this is just, I, I can't. And uh, we canceled it, and I stayed home with her. And it was one more day with this child who was so precious and who passed away. Finally, after 23 months of battling this terrible brain tumor. But one of the things that struck me about a story I heard about um, your and Janine's taking her in as your daughter, that there was a moment when she was there and she was singing. You all heard singing. Yeah. And, you know, in spite of everything that was going on with her, she's just singing out loud, I'm a child of God. A prayer, yeah. yeah. The kids in Haiti at our orphanage sing this prayer every night as part of the uh, devotion that they do. And she was, we just heard it coming from the room. And she was at this point a year and a half into this terrible brain tumor. And I swear that that was a moment where she was just, her and God were connected. And she was saying, I'm, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. And on her tombstone in, in Haiti, sorry, uh, that's what we put on it. Mm. In, in Creole and in English, I am a child of God and she, and she was, and we all are. And when you realize that she didn't look like me, she didn't talk like me, she didn't come from the same country, but I could not have loved the child more. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that we are all connected that way. And uh, Maury was, and she was, and I ended up learning from a seven-year-old, just like I learned from a 78-year-old. I seemed to be perpetually in the other chair as, as the as the amazing, incredible person is, is dying in the bed in front of me. As both the taker and the giver, because as you are the one who's sitting there listening, you are giving while you're also at the same time receiving. Well, she may have given more to me. Yeah. You know, she told me one time when she couldn't walk anymore and I had to go to work, I would carry her around and I said, I gotta go to my work. She said, no, don't go, don't go. I said, it's my job. She said, no, it isn't. Your job is to carry me. Oh. And I realized, of course it is. Of course it is. That's my job. And uh, that's all of our jobs in some way or another, is to carry one another. Well, certainly one of your jobs has been to carry this message forward of Maury's, you know, great desire to let the world know that we can all be better through love. Yeah. 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 He said, love each other or perish. Love each other or perish. Yeah. 
You did that, Mitch Album. You did that. Uh, I'm trying to do it, Oprah. <laughs> and thanks for maybe 20 years from now, we'll do this again. <laughs> we'll say 40 years 40 ago. 40 years ago, <laughs> yeah. we had the conversation. Yeah. What's the purpose of the soul? <sighs> to share itself with other people on the planet and recognize that it comes from a higher force mm. and a greater power. Very good. What's been the most difficult choice you've had to make to fulfill your destiny? To uh, take on a dying child, knowing that it probably would not end well, knowing that I would have to witness maybe the most heartbreaking thing in my life and doing it anyhow. Hmm. What do you think is the real hunger of humanity right now? What are we Meaning. Hunger? Meaning, yeah. Meaning, yeah. a sense of purpose besides just growing older or trying to achieve something. Mm -hmm. What is the one thing you think people want to hear at the end of their lives? You mattered, you, you loved, and you are loved. I think that's it. I think that is really it. Yeah. What do you think happens when we die? You and Maury had to talk about that. Yeah, Maury, uh, Maury wasn't the best person to ask about that. For most of his life, he hadn't been very religious, and he didn't think much. And towards the very end, he said, I'm negotiating with the angels to see if I get to be one of them. So he had had some kind of an epiphany. Um, but I do, think, I do think that we go somewhere. I do think that there is something beyond this world. I had an uncle who had a near-death experience, and... Um, told me that he rose above his hospital bed as they were mm -hmm. operating on him and he saw all his dead relatives waiting for him. And of course, he was a sailor to World War II guy and a very grizzled veteran. I said, well, what did you say? And he said, I said, get the hell out of here. I'm not ready for you yet. <laughs> and they flew away and he went back into his body. That became the basis of the five people you meet in heaven. Yeah, that was yeah. the book that I wrote was based on that. So he had no reason to lie to me. He wasn't trying to, you know, start a cult or write a book. And so I believe that there's people waiting for us and I have a long list of people longer as I get older who I would like to see again. What is the one question everyone should ask themselves at least once a year? Does this matter? <sighs> Good. <laughs> once a year, once a day, once an hour, does this really matter? And what is the best advice you were ever given and actually followed? That you're only going to have a few really good really true friends in your life. And if you're really smart, you'll marry the best one. And I did. That's great. Thank you, Janine. That was perfect. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba.